So, a uh, little trivia. Two-thirds of the Bible is prophecy. That's a lot. It means it's important to God. And of all the two-thirds of prophecy, there is two-thirds of it is about the nation of Israel. So, the bulk of that which is written about the future that we would call prophecy is concerning the nation of Israel. So, obviously, they're a key part, key player in this whole deal. And so, we're going to talk about Israel this morning and views and how it uh, is a key part of our looking at prophecy and deciding what it means. So, in your notes, number one, God is a covenant, a promise-making God. He enters into relationships with people on the basis of a covenant that he makes. Quite formal, the words in the covenant that he establishes with people. And so he has said uh, as a description of himself, I am a covenant-making God. He enters into covenants, into relationships, and that means he makes a contract, as it were, an agreement, a promise about the future with people. And there's uh, seven different covenants in the Bible. So let's just take… Um, Oh, I don't know. Who, who do I like? Bill Schutzman. He's getting to be old, ready to go to heaven. So before the class is over, Bill falls over with a heart attack. I sure hope that doesn't happen. I'll, but anyway, uh, and so he stands before uh, Jesus, and Jesus says, why should I let you into my heaven? And he responds, well, because I trusted you as my personal Savior. I believe that you died for my sins, and, and I've uh, followed you as my, as my Lord and Master in my lifetime. And uh, Jesus says, well, that's the old program. You didn't get the word. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> is that going to happen? God is a covenant-making God. He makes covenants. He makes promises. And he keeps them. That's an important, important part of our security. Number two, it is impossible to accurately interpret prophecy without a clear understanding of the biblical covenants because they all deal with the future. And so we need to understand those covenants and the application of them to our life. Again, there's seven of them. We're not going to look at all seven, just a couple. Uh, number three, there are, well, there are two kinds of covenants. If I go too fast, did I, you all get that number two filled in? Let's, we'll back up. I forget that you're filling in blanks. Number two, it is impossible to accurately interpret prophecy without a clear understanding of the biblical covenants. And so you look in Scripture at the covenants. There's lots written about them, and you look and see the details of the covenants because most of the covenants have to do with the future, and you talk about prophecy as the future. And if you don't understand the covenants, you won't get uh, the... the uh, prophecies straight. Number three, there are two kinds of covenants. Conditional and unconditional. So one of the things I did, Patty and I did, with our kids when they were little, is we entered into covenants. And that was an agreement. If you do this, then this is what we will do for you. And the promise of what we would do was significant, and the goal was it would motivate them in their behavior. And so the, the uh, you do this, we'll do this, and that was an agreement. And we kept our part of the deal if they kept theirs. In other words, if they didn't do what 
they were supposed to do, then we didn't do what we promised. That's a conditional covenant. You have a responsibility. You get a three-point, and we will buy you a new car. <laughs> he never said that, but, you know, just an example. Uh, you, you parents can try that one if you want. Uh, it motivates if you attach reward to behavior, and so it's a relationship that you establish as the one that is the authority, as it were. And so God entered into those kinds of covenants. And then an unconditional covenant, there's no condition attached. God says, I will do this. It doesn't make any difference what you do. And so you, you, uh, there's both kinds. Number four, the Edenic, 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 however you pronounce that one, that's Eden, uh, the, the covenant that was made with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, was a conditional covenant. Adam and Eve didn't keep the part that they were supposed to keep, so they got kicked out of the garden. So the, 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 the contract, as it were, went like this. You take care of the garden and don't eat the fruit on that one tree, and you get to stay here in this beautiful place and have a great relationship with me forever. And so they broke their part of the deal. They ate the fruit and got booted out of the garden. And so that's an example of a covenant that God made that was conditional with the ones that he made it from, made it with. Uh, the, the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood, is unconditional. He made a promise it doesn't make any difference what anybody does. He didn't say, you do this and I'll do this. He simply said, this is the future. This is my covenant with you. And so there's no be good, be bad, you do this. That. God just simply said, this is my promise to you, to the world. Genesis 9, I establish my covenant with you. All flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow, my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and all the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow, the rainbow, will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant, everlasting, this is for until the thing, uh, we enter into eternity between God and every living creature and all flesh that is on the earth. And so in there, did you see any requirement of anybody that God says, okay, this is what you have to do. Otherwise, I'm going to send another flood. It's unconditional. It's a flat-out promise for the future that God makes. The Mosaic or Old Covenant was conditional. So, we're going to have a test. We're going to go down through the covenants when we're done, and I ask you the question, conditional, unconditional, conditional, unconditional. And if you get them all right, you get a reward, a new car. No, let's see. You get to climb out Adams with me. How's that for a reward? Cool. Okay. So, listen carefully so you get the, the, get the reward. All right? Um, 
The Mosaic Covenant, that's the one that God made with Moses and the nation of Israel. It was a conditional covenant. Deuteronomy 5, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us, made a covenant, an agreement with us at Horeb. That's the mountain where God came and the Ten Commandments were given. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but with us, with us, the ones that are here today, alive. Deuteronomy 5.31, But as for you, stand here by me that I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I give them to possess. So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you. That, in order that, you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. So, conditions pretty clear. Here's the laws. Obey them and you then can live in the promised land. I'll take you there. How'd they do? They didn't do too well on that one. Number seven, the Abrahamic covenant was and is unconditional. Covenant was made by God with Abraham, unconditional. Now, sometimes people will kind of mush the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant together because they are related, but they're two separate covenants made to two separate individuals, 400 years separating the making of the covenant. Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you. God speaking to Abraham. And your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You see anything in there about conditions? Oh, God just said, this is what I'm going to do. This is my promise to you, no conditions attached. Ezekiel. 36, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, that is, you're not the reason why I'm making this covenant. O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their, <clears throat> in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. So God says, you guys haven't done so well, but I'm going to do this. You haven't kept the covenant of the Mosaic covenant, but I'm going to do this. It doesn't have anything to do with you. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, I, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe all my ordinances because of this spirit that God has given. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. Why? Because God decided. He chose. He said, it's not because of you. You didn't earn this. Uh, 
You're not a special people that I've decided to do this for you. Nothing to do with you. You guys have just sort of messed the whole thing up. But I'm going to fix it with this covenant. You will be my people. I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanliness. I will call for the grain and multiply it. I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake. Again, declares the Lord God, let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. Why? Because God decided. And the waste desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. I, the Lord, have decided. I've made a covenant and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock of, at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. They will know that I am the Lord. That's the Abrahamic covenant. There is a whole bunch more verses in the Old Testament restating this covenant over and over and over again. And it's always stated unconditional. God says, this is what I will do, uh, regardless of what you do. Amos 9, in that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden, Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. When the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land. They will, they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. So I will restore Israel to the land. That's God's promise. Hosea. When Israel was a youth, I loved him out of Egypt. I loved him, out of, and out of Egypt I, I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of a man with bonds of love. I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to return to me. The sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call on me on high, none at all exalts me. None exalts me. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebium? My heart is turned over within me. This is God speaking. 
All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man. I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. This is what I will do in spite of how they've lived and what they've done. Ezekiel 28, thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and will manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they will live in their land which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live in it securely. They will build houses, plant vineyards, live securely. When I execute judgments upon all who scorn them round about them, then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Jeremiah 31, 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, that is the sun and the moon and the stars, departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. So you you catch that promise. God says stars, moon. Sun, they're fixed. And if you see them disappear, then you'll know that I'm not keeping my promise with Israel. And it's a promise he's making. I will keep this promise. It's a, it's a covenant that I will keep. So, number eight, the Davidic covenant. Covenant that God made with David. It's unconditional. Now, the basic gist of the covenant Abrahamic covenant is the land, the land of Canaan. My people, Israel, will inherit the land. That's the basic covenant. No matter what, they're scattered all over the world. I will gather them. They will be in the land. <clears throat> and then David, the covenant with David is you will be the king of the nation of Israel in the land forever. And so as you read and study about the kingdom And we'll do a lot of that in the days ahead. The millennial kingdom. The capital will be Jerusalem, and David will be ruling in Jerusalem. The Lord will as well, but uh, David will be ruling over the nation of Israel. God promised that. Psalms 89, I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him with with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him, but I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and my name, his horn, will be exalted. I I shall also set his hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn. And you can see how David is a type or a fulfillment of Christ, the Messiah, as well as his literal fulfillment of him as a man. The highest of the kings of the earth, my loving kindness I will keep for him forever. My covenant shall be confirmed to him, so I will establish his descendants forever, his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes, do not keep my commandments, and that's exactly true if you read the book of uh, all the kings and chronicles and uh, that David's sons didn't do so well. He said, if they violate my statutes, do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod, their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, 
from David, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness, my covenant I will not violate. My covenant I will not violate. Nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Unconditional covenant that God makes with him. His descendants shall endure forever his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. Jeremiah 33, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day, my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne. And with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven, cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured. So I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Okay. <clears throat> Ready to earn your right to climb out Adams with me? The covenant that God made with Adam and Eve. Now, you're going to raise your right hand if you say it's conditional, your left hand if you say it's unconditional. Okay, raise a hand. Okay, we'll move on to Noah. God made a covenant with Noah. Was it conditional or unconditional? I forget which is. Unconditional is left? Unconditional is left? Okay. Right. Which hand? Raise a hand. Oh, well, Ivy, it looks like you're going to get to climb Mount Adams with me. I think you got them both right so far. The Mosaic Covenant, the one with Moses, nation of Israel. Conditional, that's your right hand. Unconditional, left. Raise your hand. You got it, huh? Some of you are not raising your hand. Are you a chicken or what? You don't want to climb Mount Adams. Oh, all right, we'll go back to the new car. Maybe I'll get more cooperation. Uh, Abrahamic Covenant, conditional, unconditional. Davidic? Yeah? Okay. You're all doing good. Number nine, one of the most important things to do when studying prophecy is to keep straight who is being talked about in the prophecy. So there's prophecies made for Israel, and there's prophecies made for the church. Now, there's going to be in the kingdom, the, the, the kingdom on earth, there's going to be different groups, Old Testament saints. Adam, he wasn't a Jew. Well, the Jews are going to be in the promised land with David ruling. Where's Adam going to be? He's not part of the church. Well, there's a group. We call them Old Testament saints. Job, Noah, Adam, cool dudes. They're going to be in the kingdom, but they're not in the uh, part of the Jewish or the church. That's another group. And then there's nation of Israel. There's the church, the bride of Christ. We have a special place in the kingdom. And then there are believers that come out of the tribulation, special group of people. Uh, there's actually seven different groups uh, that will have a role, a place uh, in the kingdom. It's fun to study what they are, but you've got to keep them straight. Otherwise, you end up with hash. Uh, number 10, a big mistake that is frequently made is to confuse the nation of Israel with the church. If you do that, you're just going to have really messy prophecy. You have to keep those two straight. <clears throat> a lot of hash theology going around today. That's just where you take everything up, cut it all up, throw it in the same pot, and stir it up, and ha, look at that. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but whatever. Number 11, a prevalent teaching that has been around for a long time and has grown much stronger in the last 10 years is called replacement theology. 
So if you hold to replacement theology, your theology on prophecy all of a sudden gets really simple because everything's about one group. You don't have to figure out the prophecy, who it's concerning. It's all for one group. That's us. Uh, and so about two-thirds of every denomination in our country, every believer in our country, are believe in replacement theology. Uh, Twelve replacement theology teaches that because Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that the church has taken over the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant was made and replacement theology says they crucified Jesus, therefore they are no longer eligible and the church takes their place. So big problem with that. The Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. It was unconditional and he used the word forever repeatedly. So why is it a whole big group of theologians and denominations and Bible teachers say Israel's out they crucified their Messiah, and the church now takes their place. Very, very common uh, theology. And even those who don't understand it often will believe it and talk like it is true. Thirteen, replacement theology teaches that all the prophecies in the Old Testament made concerning the nation of Israel are now being fulfilled in the church, not Israel. So if we believed that here, I wouldn't teach this class. Wouldn't be a whole lot to teach. Um, pretty simple theology once you arrive at this conclusion, and it gets even simpler. So Romans 11, um, this is a long passage, but this is so critically important to this point here. I say then, Paul speaking, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have torn down your altars. I alone am left. I'm the only person left in the whole nation of Israel. And they're getting ready to kill me. But what is the divine response? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. He's talking here about Jewish people. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, if the, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, you Gentiles, uh, you being a wild olive, were gathered in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches 
If you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you, and they also. If they did, do not continue, and their unbelief will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Mystery. Remember the word mystery? We talked about it. Previously unrevealed truth so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel, partial in the sense of time. Partial uh, ha uh, hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Fullness of the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles, what is that? Until it comes to an end, when will that happen? So, the church the bride of Christ, we are now in the church age called the time of the Gentiles. And it had a beginning on the day of Pentecost, and it has an end, and it ends on the day of the rapture. Every person from the day of Pentecost to the day of the rapture, that is the church, the bride of Christ, a very formal group of individuals that is very definite and the, those that are in it whose names are mentioned. And at the day of the rapture, the time of the Gentiles ceases. It's over. Um, partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is, every person added to the church that is added needs to be added. There's a definite number. So all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant. This is my covenant with them. When did he make that? Abraham, years before, when I take away their sins from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Fathers, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts of the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who became his counselor, who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him for from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever. God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. It was eternal. It was permanent. And it will not change. And we, the church, have not taken over the promises. Uh, all Israel will be saved. By the way, when we get to talking about the tribulation, seven-year tribulation period prophesied all through the Old Testament, the specific purpose of the tribulation. The specific, there's several, but the most stated, strongest stated one is to bring Israel to God in mass. That's the reason for the tribulation. Um, and you'll see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that says that very same thing. They as a nation will turn to Jesus as their Messiah during the tribulation period. That's the purpose of it. And so when we start talking about us, uh, what is the prophecy concerning us in regards to the tribulation? We're not mentioned. 
We're not mentioned. We're not part of that group of people. We're the church, the bride of Christ, separate group with separate prophecies. 14, uh, Constantine was a Roman emperor who converted to Christianity. So you've watched the movies. Uh, you know about the Roman Empire and the emperors and the gladiators and the persecution uh, that took place. Uh, Paul was martyred by Nero, uh, a Roman emperor. Uh, Peter was martyred by a Roman emperor. And so Rome was very hostile to Christianity. There were ten emperors in a row that persecuted believers, killed them, burned them at the stake, uh, threw them into lions, made a public spectacle in the, in, the, in the Colosseums. They did all kinds of things. You can read stories about that period in Fox's Book of Martyrs about how Christians were martyred during this time, cruel, awful ways of torturing people. And then Constantine came along. He was a Roman emperor, and he became a Christian. Lots of different uh, uh, stories, traditions about that whole thing, but things definitely changed. And... Uh, Many of our Easter that came from Constantine. A lot of things that we have today uh, in the church came from his conversion. 15. Constantine reigned during the 4th century and is known for attempting to Christianize the Roman Empire. During his reign, the term Holy Roman Empire began. You had the Roman Empire and the, and the, uh, the emperors and the ruling of the world, and now it becomes the Holy Roman Empire because the church and the government became one. You read history during that time period, lots of conflict between the pope and the emperor over who was the boss. Uh, there was lots of con great fun to read some of the conflict that happened. Sounds sometimes like our politics, <laughs> quite political. Who's in charge? Uh, the Pope, and he had the power of excommunicating the emperor, or the emperor could have somebody go shoot him. I guess they didn't shoot people. They whacked their heads off. Uh, and so they had this competition going over who's in charge. But it was now called the Holy Roman Empire. 16, he made the persecution of Christians illegal. And there was an official document that said, if you kill a Christian, hurt a Christian, you're going to get in big trouble. The Edict of Milan in 1313. Whew, boy, that was great for Christians, wasn't it? Seventeen, he is best known for bankrolling many church building projects. If you take a tour of Israel, uh, you will see these holy sites and if you go in the building, you can... Uh, this doesn't look like what you might call the kind of stuff that, um, where Jesus lived. It's much more modern. Uh, there are sanctuaries, these various holy places. Well, they were built by Constantine at places that they said, this is where, this, this is where the Beatitudes were preached, so there's a building there. And uh, this is where Jesus was buried. There's a building there. Uh, in all these various uh, places. He built a building in all these locations to preserve them and protect them. And uh, so often when you go to Israel now and you take a tour of these places, they're buildings that Constantine funded, uh, paid for. Uh, he commissioned new copies of the Bible. 
And he would summon councils to hammer out religion. Uh, they'd have fights over doctrine, and so he'd say, okay, let's all get together, figure this one out. And uh, first one, 18, the Council of Nicaea met in 325, convened by the Emperor Constantine to resolve the controversy of Arianism. So, let's see, what can we have? Uh, dinner out with Pastor Mike. In a few minutes, I'm going to say, what was Arianism? So don't let me forget to ask you. Now, if you get it right, is he in here? I've got to make sure he gets the news on that one, whoever gets it right. <laughs> uh, that, 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 they, the doctrine taught that Jesus was created. Now, they, that's around today. Mormonism, Jehovah Witness. Jesus wasn't equal with the Father. He had a point in time which he was created. So that's where it began with this dude here. Well, they have a council to decide, is it in or is it out? And they basically declared it a heresy. 19, also at the Council of Nicaea, under Constantine's oversight, the church formally disconnected from the Jewish roots of Christian theology and practice. Formally separated. The connection between the church and the nation of Israel. That means it was put in writing basically as this is what we believe. And replacement theology became the official position of the church. So at this time there was one, only one church, the Catholic Church, uh, the Holy Roman Church, and later, not too long after that, uh, Orthodox church was born as they squabbled over whether the capital was at Rome or Constantinople. But, and, and today, the Catholic Church, uh, their doctrine is replacement theology. Israel is not part of the picture. And so that was official at that point way back in 354. It's been taught ever since. And uh, number 21, Augustine, he was one of the major theologians of the church just a few years later. Uh, he come, oops, uh, number 20, I skipped one there, sorry about that. Uh, Augustine was born in 354 A.D., so you can see that's not long after the council, and became one of the major theologians of the Roman Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And he wrote five million words that survive today. So, just to give you an idea how much that is, I've written my blog for... Uh, I think 10 years. Um, I went back and looked the other day how many years I've been doing it. There's basically 2,173 blogs I've written since this morning. And they're average about 500 words each. So what's that, a million words about approximately? And then I write my sermons out. And I've kept all of them for 44 years. I have about 4,000 words written on paper uh, in boxes and files all through my office, stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks. So my blog, my sermons, about 5,000 words. That's about what Augustine did. The difference, I have a computer, I type it, 
I cut and paste. He wrote it all with a pen. That's a lot of information. So he wrote prolifically information. Much of it, most of it still survives today. I've read a lot of Augustine's writings. Um, and so he had a huge influence on the church. Number 21, Augustine wrote that the Jews had crucified Jesus so they should be shunned at best and persecuted and killed at worst. So he became an influencer, obviously, by the volume of writing that he did, and he became their, theology, their, their theological one that determined most of the theology of the church. And so that was a part of his writing. <clears throat> 22, there were nine crusades. Those are fun movies, aren't they? Knights all decked out, lances and swords in the whole nine yards. Uh, there were nine crusades from approximately 1100 to 1300. So if you're going down the timeline here, we're about 700 years down from Augustine now. Uh, 700 to 1000. So the crusades were initiated by the Pope, and the idea was to free Jerusalem, the holy city, from the control of the Muslims. So he preached this sermon and said, this is what we need to do, and rallied the troops, and off they went to conquer Jerusalem and to free it from the control of the Muslims. And there were nine different crusades that took place uh, by the, the crusaders, and they didn't do so well. Cool movies, <laughs> if you like, knights and all that kind of stuff. And so, 23, one of the battle cries of the European crusaders was, kill a Jew for Jesus which they did. They didn't do so well with the Muslims, so let's take care of the Jews. And so there were thousands and thousands of Jews that were slaughtered by crusaders as they went through the villages and route to Jerusalem from Europe and through Europe. Another reason was uh, the, the Catholic Church outlawed uh, making loans to people at interest. Couldn't do it, otherwise you went to hell. Jews, hey, they did it. So if you wanted to borrow money to buy a car, you didn't go to a, a, a Catholic person. You went to a Jewish person because they would loan money to you. Couldn't do it if you were a Catholic, at least not do it for interest. And so who's going to loan money if you're not going to charge any interest? So he went, well, as they're going across the country, they recognize those Jews, they got a ton of money. We're going to kill them for Jesus, but in the, and then we're going to take their money too. And so they did that. Uh, 24, Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546, keeping on the timeline there, was the father of the Reformation. Now, he said there's one church, one church, one church, and they got real corrupt, especially when government got involved in it. Their theology was totally a mess, what you call the Dark Ages during that period because of the awful theology and the corruption that existed in the church because of the connection with the government. And so the Reformation was a jump out of that. Our history comes from the Reformation, and Luther was a key person, leader in that whole thing. He was father of the Reformation, as such was, has a great place in church history. Uh, 25, Martin Luther was greatly influenced by Augustine's teaching. Um, in fact, he was his number one go-to theologian, Augustine, and as a result, he preached many anti-Jewish sermons and wrote many anti-Jewish books.
One of the books that he wrote, 65,000 words in the book, the title of it was, So What Shall We Do With the Jews? And here are some chapter headings. First, set fire to their synagogues or schools. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom so that God will see that we are devoted Christians. Second, I advise that their houses also be burned down and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry uh, lies and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of limb and life. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. They have no business in the countryside anyway. Sixth, I advise that usury be prohibited from them and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. So that was Martin Luther's book uh, that he wrote. Twenty-six, Martin Luther was quoted by Hitler numerous times as a justification for the murder of millions of Jewish people. Luther was German, so the book was written in German. Hitler was German, and so that was a main uh, justification for him as he slaughtered Jews. 27, Martin Luther's writings are a basis of much anti-Semitism today. That book is still around, still available. So, questions that any on that information? A lot of verses, a lot of history, covenants. Um, got the microphone right there. So, is the church, which is Gentile, influenced by Martin Luther even today? It is. Question was, is the church influenced by Martin Luther's teaching today? Obviously, there's a whole denomination named after him, and the theology that he taught, a uh, key part of it is replacement theology, and that Israel is not the chosen people of God or have no part in the fulfillment of prophecy. We've taken that over. And so whether that uh, aggressive anti-Semitism is practiced or not, it's still taught, was taught by his writings, and it's available to those who... Um, read his stuff. I've read quite a bit of stuff by Luther. He was a great theologian in an area, but he had one area that was like he might call the dark side of his influence in life and leadership and with the nation of Israel, which started, you know, years before him. I was just wondering how the replacement theology churches deal with Romans 11. A good question. Uh, how do they deal with Romans 11, all the other passages I read? And the answer is they spiritualize it. Uh, they don't use the literal method of interpretation. So that's why we went through that, is so your hermeneutics is determined by, excuse me, your, your theology is determined by your hermeneutics. And so if you have a system of hermeneutics that allows to spiritualize things, in other words, okay, that's not really what it means. We're not going to go literal here. We're going to give it a spiritual application instead of a literal one. Then you can arrive at these conclusions. And so they have it in their written uh, view of hermeneutics. 
many, many denominations today that the preferred method of interpreting the Bible is the um, using allegory and spiritualizing um, things in order to make it more applicable to the general population. And so once you start allegorizing, uh, spiritualizing, then you are going to go any number of directions. So that's exactly what's happened, is that it's been... And we'll look, uh, there's not only that that's been spiritualized, we talk about the kingdom. Most denominations don't believe in a literal kingdom on earth that lasts a thousand years. That's not literal. That's, they spiritualize it. So what m- most of them teach is that we're living in the kingdom now. Mo- many of the songs we sing that use the word kingdom, if you look at what it's saying, it's saying we're in the kingdom now. It's not coming in the future. It began the day Jesus went into heaven and uh, he's king from heaven and we're the kingdom, us the church. And so that's the general theology of most denominations today is that we are living in the kingdom now. Uh, Therefore, there is no rapture because that's in the past. Kingdom's now. And there's no tribulation. Most of them that believe kingdom now, they eliminate rapture, they eliminate tribulation, uh, they eliminate just about everything. And so that's why their prophecy theology is pretty simple. Um, You know, it's just like, we're not exactly sure what's going to happen in the end, but it's some point at some time uh, we'll, we'll be done with this physical stuff in eternity, but in the meantime, we're in the kingdom now. I just have a comment. Uh, the German, Germany is still and was during World War II pretty much dominated by the replacement theology churches, Roman Catholic and Lutheran, and that there's a lot of people who say that that's lent itself. It made it more possible and easier for the German people to accept Hitler's uh, anti-Semitism. Yeah, it was prevalent in the country, and so when he came, that was a piece of cake. Uh, there's some books on that topic. Uh, um, uh, the pastor that was martyred during the war, bon, uh, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, his writings, they've collected his random writings and letters, and it's a major topic that he brings up uh, about Germany and the uh, condition that existed that allowed for Hitler to come to power and to do what he was doing to the Jewish people. And so uh, he, he deals with that in some of his writings, that replacement theology that puts Israel over here outside of God's plan. Uh, so uh, the uh, Jewish nation has rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And you say during the tribulation they're going to be gathered onto the church and accept Jesus. Do they... Do they, know, do they know this? What's their... I mean, if, if, if you tell that to a, to a Jewish person, what's their response? Uh, if you talk about Christianity, the Jewish people will bring up the Crusades and they will recognize that it was the church that persecuted them. They will bring up the Holocaust and they will give credit to the Christian church for that happening because of the influence it had on Hitler. Uh, and so they basically see themselves as having been persecuted by Christians, the church, uh, because of the history that's taken place there, which they're mostly accurate on that. And so it makes it tough 
to have a, an evangelistic conversation with a lot of Jews who know their history. Because, yeah, uh, we're going to believe in that kind of uh, Savior that called for killing the Jewish people? So they reject the notion that they will be brought into the church during the tribulation? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, some Jews are saved, but the ones that aren't would, would not accept that at all. Other questions? So my intent this morning was not to get you to think badly about Martin Luther. He is a hero of church history, but he did have a bit of a dark side that had some significant influence on our history negatively for the nation of Israel. But the, the goal of this history lesson, as it were, was to say this is where we are today. And one of the places we are today is the nation of Israel is not included. They're cut out. They've been replaced. And so if you hold that view, the study of prophecy all of a sudden gets really difficult because two-thirds of the prophecies in the Old Testament are made about the nation of Israel. And so now you've taken them out of the picture. You've cut them out, and uh, they have uh, fixed that by making us the recipients of that. Uh, but because we've spiritualized one thing, we've tend to spiritualize the other things, and pretty soon got really nothing left. Uh, so there's no thousand years and there's no promised land and there's no capital of Jerusalem and we're in the kingdom now and uh, so all that you read in prophecy in the Old Testament, none of it really makes any sense or applies. So if you are a replacement theologian, then you can just cut out about two-thirds of your Bible. And it comes simple. Uh, go to church, sing hymns, be nice and someday it'll all work out. You're, you're just going to say something about Arianism. Oh, okay. Uh, 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 who knows the definition of Arianism? Raise your hand. We'll send the mic to you. Okay, what, what was the problem? You get to go out to dinner with, the, with uh, Diderus? <laughs> that Christ was created. All right, Arianism, Christ was created. He was not... Yeah, and then, uh, so that's still around. Good work. Okay, tell Mike. I don't know if he's here. Uh, somebody tell Mike that he's taking you to dinner. All righty. Any other questions? Okay, I didn't finish. Uh, there's quite a few more to go, and I won't get them done. I'll get even more complicated as we move on, but some really fun stuff uh, coming up. Now, next week, we're going to uh, skip this lesson, and we're going to do a video thing that's special for, East, uh, for Thanksgiving and uh, I made the announcement last service. If you are, weren't there, I'll say it again. Uh, our governor has told us that we can't have more than 25 people in here uh, for the next couple of weeks. And so we're going to uh, semi-cooperate. And that means that it's, uh, uh, we'll just say, 25 in here, 25 in the old sanctuary, 25 in the gym, 25 in the D.C. center. But we're not going to enforce it. It's totally up to you. I'm not going to count. Nobody's going to count and say, ah, sorry, you can't come in. You just cooperate to the degree that you want to. And so if you stick your head in here and there's 6,000 people, you might consider going to another room. Other option is online. We do the thing online. Other option is on the radio in your car. So there's a number of options, but that's uh, what we're going to uh, aim for, 25 in room, but it's your uh, responsibility, uh, not mine. So if I stand up here and there's 200 people, praise the Lord. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Maybe we all go to jail. I don't know. 
That'd be fun. We'll do it together. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that we would be very diligent in studying it uh, correctly, uh, making, uh, interpreting uh, the way it ought to be interpreted as a, as a book that was written by people to people with information that was intended to be understood and to be uh, authoritative for living life and understanding the future. I pray, Lord, that as we read and study, it will grant us great security. You are in charge. You know what's going on. You've planned it all. And thank you for the confidence that we have. We're going to live with you. You've made a covenant. And, Lord, we've entered into that covenant by trusting Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And you will keep your promise. Um, we will live with you forever. Thank you for that great promise. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.